from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation every week in which we explore all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, our society, your community, and your private self, your mind, your body, your spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. Now I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. Visit totalleadership.org for information on what we do. Um, And there's an audio course where you can get the essence of the the book and the program. Uh, It's called Four Way Wins on Himalaya.com. There's other courses on LinkedIn and Coursera. You can find all that stuff on totalleadership.org. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter, SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman. Well, my guest today, I'm really excited to be speaking with, says that an organization's true value isn't defined by revenue growth or profitability. And it may be that he didn't always think that way. He, he says a company's real mission is to enhance the lives of the people who work there. And that's something, you know, we hear a lot. A lot of companies espouse that value. Uh, Kevin Hancock, I think, has a unique perspective on what that really means and what he's done to well, to change himself and his company, um, to embody and enact that core value. Kevin Hancock is the CEO of the Hancock Lumber Company. Uh, No, he did not found it. It was founded six, I think, six, possibly seven generations prior, but he's got the name. So that means that's a company that's been handed down generation to generation to generation since the 1840s, if I'm not mistaken. One of the oldest and best-known family businesses in America and he's a best-selling author and speaker. Today, we're going to be speaking about his book, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership, and his general business philosophy and how he got to it. Kevin, welcome to Work and Life. Stu, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm quite happy to be with you. Well, uh, I'm thrilled to have you here, Kevin. Let me just tell listeners a little bit more about you and your company before we uh, get into our conversation. Hancock Lumber is an eight-time consecutive recipient of the Best Places to Work in Maine Award. That's the great state of Maine, up on the northeast corner of the United States, uh, a place that my wife and I just recently visited for the first time. And man, did we have the greatest time there. What an amazing place. Kevin himself is a recipient of the Ed Muskie Access to Justice Award. For those of you who don't remember Ed Muskie, he was a great senator from the state of Maine. The Habitat for Humanity Spirit of Humanity Award, the Boy Scouts of America Distinguished Citizen Award, and the Timber Processing Magazine Person of the Year. He's also a member of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Kevin is the founder of The Seventh Power, which is also the name of his book, which is a nonprofit dedicated to advancing economic sovereignty for Native communities across America. Um, Well, Kevin, your story... In, in this wonderful book, The Seventh Power, is inspiring. It's instructive. Uh, you inherited a family business that has often won your state's best places to work award. So I imagine life was probably pretty easy for you growing up. I, of course, don't know the details, but you were thrown a curveball, diagnosed with a rare disorder that caused you to literally lose your voice, your power of communication. And without a voice, without being able to communicate, it, well, it forced you to change how you lead. This is my take on your story so far. Um, what's so inspiring is that you used this, um, this change in your life, this, well, let's call it a setback. Maybe you think of it differently to help you to understand and deeply appreciate uh, others who might not have voice in the world and those perhaps less fortunate than you who, who never had a voice. And you use this transformative experience to enhance your grasp of how to lead what it means to lead. So um, 
if you could please fill us in give us the short version to get the conversation going on your journey the initial aftermath of your diagnosis uh, and how that led you to the pine ridge indian reservation out in the western united states Um, and then later we can get into your journeys to uh, eastern europe to the ukraine in particular uh, about a different way to lead a different way to use and share power what happened Sure. So as you mentioned, our company began doing business in the 1840s, and I'm part of the sixth generation of my family to uh, work there, and I'm CEO of the company. My dad, who had run the company, died at quite a young age, and I took over in my early 30s, kind of as 30-year-olds would think, sure, it was not going to be that complicated or difficult. And everything went along quite well for a while until around 2007, when the national housing and mortgage markets collapsed. And that was a really difficult time for companies in our industry. At the peak of that collapse in 2010, I quite suddenly began to have trouble Speaking, when I went to talk, it felt as if someone had put a seatbelt around my throat and squeezed it. And long story short, speaking, which I'd often, uh, which I'd done a lot of in, mm-hmm. in my life and in my role as a CEO, was something suddenly that I couldn't really do. And right. I had to quite quickly come up with a very different approach to leadership. What, why, what, what was different if with limited powers of speech, which now you've recovered, I assume, I mean, I can hear everyone listening can hear that, you know, you've got, uh, you speak slower than most people, right. And slightly, uh, stilted, uh, but you're, you know, obviously, you know, clearly able to articulate your words, but what was it like at first? You actually couldn't use your voice at all. Well, it's gotten a lot better in those early years, Stu. There is no way I could have been on this show because I couldn't even have taken the phone call to discuss it to begin with. So at that time, let me say it this way. When it's hard to talk, you quickly develop strategies for doing less of it. And mine instinctively at work was to answer a question with a question, thereby putting the responsibility for speaking right back on the other person. Now, think about this age-old scene, because I was the CEO of the company, so people would come up to me with a question or a problem. Previously, when I had a full voice, I would have given a directive or an instruction. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly to start protecting my voice, I began simply saying, that is a good question. What do you think we should do about it? And at first... You didn't used to do that, Kevin? Well, some, but not enough. You know, I I was uh, very into kind of leading the traditional way and talking and directing and instructing. And suddenly I couldn't couldn't do that. Now, what struck me over time asking this question to hundreds of people was this, Stu. People already knew what to do. That's what I really learned as a result of asking that question many, many times. It turns out they didn't know that. You didn't really know that before. I I didn't know it as powerfully as Uh I came to know it, that that most of the time people already knew what to do. They didn't need a top-down instruction. What they really needed was the encouragement Mm -hmm. and the safety to trust their own voice. And that was the beginning Mm -hmm. of me starting to think very differently about leadership and the possibility of leadership really being about dispersing power, mm-hmm. not collecting it, and uh, using the limitations in my own voice to strengthen the voices of others, specifically mm-hmm. in that case, everybody within our company. You know, uh, it takes a lifetime uh, to learn leadership, and some people. 
just never get to that realization that others have a perspective that's worthwhile and that, you know, the task is to both let others know what you think, but as importantly, if not more importantly, to give them the encouragement, the support, uh, the um, really the responsibility, as you put it, to to share what they know and to do so without fear um, of of any kind of retribution for speaking truth to power. Um, so it took it took this uh, this radical change in your in your body, uh, you know, your ability to literally speak to, to really shake you up. You may never have gotten to this idea quite so uh, uh, compellingly. Uh, and so, you know, uh, comprehensively had you not experienced this change, right? Totally. In time, I came to see what I originally thought of as only a, uh, uh, disability or quite literally to a pain in the neck. I came to see it as a blessing and a gift and an invitation to live and lead in a very different way. And ironically, losing a piece of my voice ended up helping me find what I now feel is my authentic voice. That's incredible. I, I imagine, um, you know, that it, it took that. I, I want to remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. This is Stu Friedman, your host. And my guest today is Kevin Hancock, who's the CEO of Hancock Lumber Company in Maine, one of the oldest and uh, best respected uh, American family businesses, been around for 180 years, something like that. Uh, the, his book is called The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. So all right, tell us about how you got to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And, th- and then I want to ask you about how people around you started to see you differently and, and what they made of this change in you. Um, so can you tell us what, what compelled you to visit Pine Ridge? Yeah, so in 20. 20- by 2012, the economy had started to stabilize, and I had this growing feeling that I resisted at first, but that I needed to take some time to regain my own strength. I, kept, I came to think of it as to kind of search for my voice. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I always had a love affair with the American West, and particularly American history in the second half of the 19th century when our nation's manifest destiny ran into the Plains Indians. Anyway, in August of 2012, I picked up a copy of National Geographic. The Pine Ridge Indian Reservation was the cover story. I read it. I was swept away by what I read in a way I hadn't experienced before reading anything. And the moment I finished, Stu, I said to my wife, Allison, who was sitting beside me, I'm going to go there. I want to see what life is like for the people who live there. So I took an initial trip that turned into two. A decade later, I've been there over two dozen times, have had the honor of taking two Lakota names and sweat lodge ceremony, started a nonprofit and just have lots of lots of friends there. And the tie-in is this. Initially at Pine Ridge, I encountered an entire community that didn't feel fully heard, that felt as if a part of their authentic voice had been swept to the side and marginalized, which again got got me thinking about leadership and the Mm -hmm. role leadership has historically played in controlling and directing instead of liberating the voices of others. I'm pausing here, Kevin, because, you know, I know a little bit about that history. uh, And, uh, you know, it's, it's so sad to, to think about the Pine Ridge Indian reservation being the poorest County in America. These are the first people 
uh, of of this continent and what happened in their experience uh, is 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 a great tragedy, uh, of course. So so you're you're going there. You when you what drew you to that land was was what exactly what what was it that that you you know that that just you know you you turned to allison and said i gotta go there why was that yeah what what started to happen to me after my voice condition kicked in and i went into more of a listening mode is simply this the first voice i started to hear more clearly was my own and it really started to to grow a willingness to not just follow the standard uh, route expected route for an american 21st century ceo but mm-hmm. to really set myself free to go follow things that interested me mm-hmm. to the point where i couldn't even explain why I was interested in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, but I knew in my heart that it was a place I wanted to visit. And so my voice condition really got me listening uh, to my own inner voice in a way that had a really big impact on uh, helping me kind of self-actualize. You had to hear yourself in a way that you hadn't before. You were forced to. Correct. And so what did you find when you went there for the first time? Yeah, I found I found so many things. I found this this powerful, powerful uh, presence of nature on the northern plains. I found this amazing uh, long-standing indigenous community that had endured so much yet still carried love and faith and hope and optimism and that they had preserved against all odds if you will a wisdom set that i came to believe that modern humanity really needed and could benefit from so I, i i was really overwhelmed with what i was experiencing there on many different levels well, what was it about the, you know, the decision-making model the, in that community, the, the way people treat each other and hear each other and speak to each other that you found uh, so, um, so useful and so inspiring? Right. So prior to the reservation era, their communal model was one of power disbursement, that power lived within each individual. Each individual was recognized as being sacred and wholly connected to the the great spirit of all things. And in that in that culture of dispersed power, their community uh, thrived. It was vibrant and healthy. That post-reservation era, where they really were forcibly transitioned to a command and control structure, where power now lived with what they called the Great Father in Washington D.C., the President and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. In that model of top-down power to the center leadership their community statistically became the poorest place in america Mm. i i can imagine that this must have been quite moving for you uh distressing uh you know in this in the second half of the show i want to bring this back to you as the ceo of a of a long-standing lumber company uh because you know the 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 um embracing and uh you know sacred uh approach to living in harmony with with the natural world is uh is you know the hallmark of uh native peoples on this continent and elsewhere uh, i've done some speaking in australia uh, in the last few years you know pre pre-pandemic and 
one of the things that was really striking to me, uh, no matter where I spoke, whether it was in Sydney or Brisbane, uh, every every gathering starts with a, a reverent acknowledgement, genuine. Uh, you know, we're not the first people here. We acknowledge, you know, the first peoples and we honor their memory. Uh, and, you know, we are on their land. Everything starts with that. I was shocked because it seems like that's something we we ought to adopt here in, in the United States. Um, is, is what I'm saying to you making sense to you, Kevin? Do you, do you know what I'm referring to? And, and how, does, how does my little uh, sojourn uh, to another, another, another European-dominated country uh, uh, help, I mean, relate to what you experienced when, when you first went there and in your many visits since? Yeah, I can totally relate to what you said. I remember the moment, my second trip to Pine Ridge, when it dawned on me that genocide happened here. You know, I studied history. I majored in history in college. And even Mm -hmm. with that background, I somehow had convinced myself that genocide was something that only ever happened somewhere else, Nazi Germany or some other prominent example. And Mm -hmm. to recognize that it happened here was numbing, just Mm -hmm. just numbing uh, to come to terms with that. And it got me thinking again a lot about leadership. And I uh, self-articulated it this way throughout history. I think leaders, those who have the most power, have often overreached. They've gone too far, taken too mm. much. What struck me about being on the Northern Plains today around this, this reservation community is there was room for everyone. There's plenty of room on the Northern Plains, but it, those who had the most power went too far and took too much. And that got me thinking about the the opposite of overreaching is the new leadership dynamic. And that for me is restraint, which is having the power, but not using it. Mm. And so then how did that encounter with another civilization? Let's, let's call it. I mean, there's so much we could get into with, you know, the, the moral, uh, you know, uh, degradation uh, that this that this aspect of our history represents, and why we didn't learn it when we were going to school. Uh, I didn't learn it when I was going to school in the fifties and sixties. My guess is that you probably didn't either, Kevin. If you were numbed by encountering this history as an adult, uh, you know, this is a huge gap in how we tell the story of our of our past. Uh, w- without getting into that for now, although maybe it's a part of your leadership approach at, at Hancock Lumber uh, and in the other organizations that you're a part of, Boy Scouts, I don't know. Uh, but I want to stick with, for now, how did this encounter um, inform what you decided you wanted to do as the CEO of Hancock Lumber to do differently? Right. So my time at Pine Bridge combined with my spasmodic dysphonia voice experience to really create the following personal learnings. First, because of my voice condition, I actually knew what it was like to not feel fully hurt because I often then couldn't say what I wanted to say. Hmm. Then at Pine Ridge, I realized there were lots of ways for humans and human communities to lose a piece of their voice in this world. That all, Stu, got me thinking about that inanswerable question. What's the meaning of a human life? And I pondered whether or not it was to self-actualize that maybe we're all here just trying to find our own authentic voice. But as I mentioned throughout history, leaders have often done more to limit the authentic voices of others than to free them. And that's when it really hit me that I wanted to use my voice condition at work to create a culture where everybody there felt trusted, respected, valued, heard, and 
safe, not because the company would do better. It would do better. But that, to me, was the outcome of a higher calling. That higher calling was advancing humanity, one human at a time, at work by helping adults come into their own true voice, honoring them exactly as they are, which is very different from how corporations have, have traditionally engaged humans at work. That is certainly true. And that is the essence of what the seventh power is, right? You, you get the title from, well, tell us uh, where that comes from, and then we're going to have to take a short break. Yeah, the soup medicine wheel represents the six great external powers, west, north, east, south, sky, and earth. At the center of that wheel is the seventh power, and that is you. It's me. It's the individual human spirit. We're going to pick this up um, after a short break. What does it mean to truly honor the individual human spirit in, in our society and at work and how that changes the relationships that we have with each other and our capacity to bring all that we have to offer to our collaborations with others. Uh, that and more when we return, this is uh, Work and Life on Business Radio. Sirius XM 132, I'll be continuing my conversation with Kevin Hancock about his book, The Seventh Power, when we return. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. This is Stu Freeman, your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program, and founder of Total Leadership, a management consulting and training company. Uh, we help people and organizations find creative ways to to uh, to create harmony in their lives and improve their performance as leaders in all the different parts of their lives, their work, home, community, and private selves. My guest today is Kevin Hancock, who's CEO of Hancock Lumber Company, and he's the best-selling author of three books, including most recently, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. So Kevin, we're talking about some of the many things you discovered in in um, allying with the people of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. How has this transformation of your own understanding of what it means to share leadership and to listen rather than direct, um, how has that changed? Well, when you started to adopt this, let me ask first, how did people react in your company, I, I bet that people were uh, reacted very differently, depending on who they were and what their interests were. My guess is that there probably were some people who thought, uh, "I don't think I like this. I don't. I don't want to be on point to have responsibility for expressing my ideas. I, that's not me. That's not what I'm accustomed to." Or Kevin can't be serious about this, can he? Or I don't know. What was the reaction? Yeah, I would say there definitely was a strategic pause where the organization tried to determine whether or not this was the uh, so-called flavor of the month or something that really was going to stick. Once they saw I'd gone over the edge permanently in pursuit of shared leadership, Everything started to tip pretty quickly. But to your point, it is a big adjustment from the traditional model because when leadership changes, followership also has to be redefined. So Mm -hmm. everybody's role in the company changes in a model built around dispersed power and shared leadership. Mm-hmm. And so what was that like? Uh, wh- what would you say is the most important lesson you learned about changing your your approach and, and giving more voice to the people around you in your organization? And I assume that holds true also for your your suppliers, your your customers um, up and down the supply chain uh, 
and the delivery you know process and and the others that you interact with in state government um what what's what's the most important lesson you've learned from that experience yeah there, there were two big ones uh, that above all others first was restraint restraint patience okay. for process and just because you as the leader are ready to go, make a decision, make a move, does not mean everyone else has had the opportunity to process that topic. So patience was the first element, but it's strategic. What I've seen, it's slowing down to include every voice is at actually a pathway to the organization speeding up because once you make decisions, you've really got the entire community behind it. Second big learning right. was the purpose of learning, uh, excuse me, the purpose of listening. Mm-hmm. And simply put, I would describe it this way, listening in the new model is for understanding not judgment. Mm. It's for understanding, not judgment. The whole point is just to honor everybody's perspective as they authentically hold it. Mm-hmm. If you can make it safe for people to say what they honestly think, I call that the answers to the test. They will tell you exactly where the opportunities to improve the company mm-hmm. lie. But, but you have to encourage that and, and make it, uh, I mean, some people refer to this as psychological safety. Other people call it simply consensus-driven decision-making. Uh, you know, it's, it's a concept that's not new to humanity, but it is uh, all too uncommon uh, in many of the organizational settings that, you know, that we, we see that, that tend more to follow the top-down approach. Um, you know, the, the people of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, uh, you know, they will take the time to listen to each other, I, I gather. And, and then we look at, you know, where they've ended up. So how do you how do you reconcile you know, the power of shared leadership and the, you know, the native um, peoples of this continent and others as having been almost, you know, decimated and destroyed by a different model. Looking at that metric alone, you'd think, well, top down is better because it works in the sense of achieving dominance and control. Where am I wrong? I'm playing devil's advocate here, clearly. Yeah, I think about it this way. I think that great people are everywhere. It's really the culture that leadership drives, defines, and imposes that makes the difference. I think historically, Stu, as a big, clear example about Germany after World War II, divided randomly, right, between East and West. West Germany went on to become the economic engine of Europe, if not uh, the world, and East Germany hung on under uh, machine guns and guard uh, towers until it collapsed under its own weight. But it wasn't because all the quote-unquote best Germans happened to be on the west side of that line. There was one leadership model that honored the power of the individual human spirit, and another that was an extreme example, a fanatic extreme example of power to the center. Mm-hmm. And we see this at Pine Ridge, that when power was dispersed in that community, the suit tribes uh, thrived. And when power was pulled away from the individual, they uh, struggled. And I think particularly times change in the 21st century in the Aquarian age, we're really living in the age of power dispersal. 
Mm-hmm. Th- that's what humanity is wanting. But leaders and leadership models are derailing uh, that sentiment. And I think that's where the discontent and unrest and uh, lack of meaning at work is that's why it's manifesting. Mm. We're wanting something different than than the models we're living with are providing from a leadership standpoint. People have always wanted voice uh, and and uh, a kind of trust to be able to express their perspective, and yet it has, in so many instances, been um, you know diminished, suppressed, snuffed out. Um, how do you make it come alive? In, in the day-to-day at, at Hancock. Can you give us an example of like what this model looks like that you wouldn't have thought of uh, doing at, as a 30-year-old? Yeah, yeah. What I would say is this, it's surprisingly simple. All we did uh, that, that drove everything was change the mission. We hmm. said the first mission of this company is going to be the experience of the people that work here. And if you picture a corporate flywheel Mm -hmm. with all its constituencies on it, the idea is let's put our energy in setting that flywheel in motion at the point of the employee experience. If employees are having an exceptional experience, that's going to manifest as an exceptional customer experience Mm -hmm. and corporate performance. So the mission matters. Most companies get what they focus on. (laughs) Mission matters. Mm -hmm. And then when we changed the mission, we needed a new metric because if the mission Mm -hmm. was the employee experience, well, how are we going to measure it? And think about it this way, Stu. Everyone in business can picture this. We've got a million metrics for measuring how the company's doing. But how many metrics do we have for measuring how the employees are doing, having a human experience at work? And that's uh, where we got into engagement mm-hmm. surveys, third-party engagement surveys, mm-hmm. but we, which are not uncommon, the difference to is we elevated that to our most important metric. Said to our management team, if you feel overwhelmed and can only work on one metric, you focus on this one. Wow. Uh, Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Kevin Hancock, who's the CEO of Hancock Lumber Company up in Maine the great state of Maine. We're talking about his powerful book. It's called The Seventh Power, unleashing really the, the voice of people in your organization. And, and that's certainly one way to do it is to reward uh, those who are managing others for uh, ensuring that their people are engaged first and foremost. Um, what, what do you tell your you know other uh, executives and CEOs of other companies that you that you hang out with, whether it's in, in Maine or elsewhere, uh, how do you advise them when they tell you, I don't have time for this? You know, it sounds great, Kevin, but uh, no, my, my, my board won't let me. Uh, it's going to take too much time. I don't have the patience for it. Besides, I know best or whatever it is that they, they might say by way of, you know, resistance. How do you advise them? Yeah, what I, what comes to mind there is I'm sure they can prove they're right. Anyone who wants to disprove the validity of that model can can carry that thought in their mind. But what I've seen uh, over a decade of working at this approach of deep, authentic employee engagement. It's sharing power is actually a lot easier and simple than hoarding it and collecting it. The 
old model takes a ton of work and yeah. rules and checks to hold it in balance. Yeah. The new model uh, sustains itself. And here's one of the other points I really like to emphasize with executives who, who will say to me, you know, if everybody has their own voice. Doesn't that just mean kind of scattered, diffused, chaos, lack of focus. Yeah. And what we've seen is just the opposite, that when everyone participates in decision-making, discipline, best practices, efficiency, accuracy, process improvement all go up. Our safety director many years ago summarized it best at my view when he said people are much more apt to deeply support that which they help to create. So giving others a voice strengthens corporate speed and agility and Mm -hmm. focus, not weakens it. Yeah. I call it slowing down to speed up Uh, just, just as you did. I mean, it's the same, same basic concept, uh, that most people understand once they sit back and just reflect on it for a minute, uh, as, as we have been doing here. Now, um, one of the things that we know about the Native peoples, including those that you have become friends with, uh, you know, the, the six powers are powers of, of nature, right? Uh, and there's a kind of communion and a, uh, you know, a sacredness about the relationship with the natural world that that um you know many of us have lost now your your company cuts trees right so how uh, how do how does your relationship with the natural world in terms of your business how does that fit with what you uh have been learning about uh you know the how you know trees are a part of us and 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 we are a part of them and then they you know if you read uh richard powers great story uh his great um novel of you know that's rooted in in science over story um mm-hmm. you, must be, you must be familiar with that amazing book which is about how trees talk to each other um i i would love to get your perspective on how you think about the the question of you know what it means for you to do what you do with in your in the lumber business and and these these principles of the sacred connection among all living things sure i i love that question it's su- such an important question Stu. i i'm reminded of the great american philosopher joseph campbell who said life eats life That is the order of planet Earth. So the Sioux um, killed buffalo, cut trees, burnt grasslands, but did so with reverence. The taking of a buffalo's life was a sacred moment that that Mm. that buffalo was a was a four-legged brother is the phrase that sue used so take that forward to the modern day humans still have needs earth is a closed planet the only thing that gets in or out is sunlight so our resources have to come from here when it comes to housing the most sustainable resource harvested uh, correctly uh, is our, our trees. Uh, we we grow more fiber every year on our land that we harvest, and we could do what we're doing for a thousand years, and the forests would be intact and healthy. Well, that's a that's an important model for for the rest of us. What is what is your take on? Uh, and what we need to be thinking about in terms of climate action, you know, more broadly beyond the lumber industry. What are your thoughts on that briefly? We're going to have to wrap up in just a couple of minutes. And this is a topic for a a whole nother hour of discussion. But um, where does Hancock Lumber stand on uh, supporting sustainable growth in in our country and and globally? Yeah. So in a in a mindset of shared leadership and distributed power, every individual and every company would 
take the well-being of the whole as a priority. So what I like about our cultural approach within our company is that it really supports the right kind of, of thinking. We need to be leaders at Hancock Lumber in advancing sustainability in every way that that everyone on our team can help us think about and and pursue. I, I thought a lot about how humanity advances or how uh, the, the earth is protected. And really, at the end of the day, it happens one person, one human, one company at a time. And we need to focus uh, on the big list of things that we can do. Mm-hmm. that are right in front of us as a company and and they're and they abound there's lots we can do what's the, what's the what's the most top of mind as you think about what you're doing as a company to 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 make a dent in uh, the sustainability of of human life on on earth yeah in the spirit of your show it's it's really thinking about uh, sustainability includes humans and that the, the traditional work experience that has often been uh, deraining, energy deraining for the people who do it, reversing that trend. Let's say that we could make work energy giving, that people would leave their work experience with more energy, more confidence, more self uh, worth and sense of purpose and bring that into their entire life. If work could be a place that fuels the human spirit, mm. that, that um, it is a foundation that, that can drive sustainability in countless other ways. Of course it can. Now you have a couple of kids, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. Two adult daughters. How are they thinking about all this and their futures? I know uh, I have to ask them. Uh, I get it. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I say all, all of this resonates with them. I mean, you know, think about this model of of we're going to honor you exactly as you are. Hmm. That would that resonates with pretty much everybody, which is why I love the model and the goal it's it's uh winning for everybody i I think about it this way in the 21st century winning isn't winning unless everybody's winning Mm -hmm. and the work experience needs to be meaningful more than just a paycheck for the people who do it yep Nobody wins unless everybody wins. We, we've heard that from Martin Luther King, Woody Guthrie, Bruce Springsteen, and many other great political philosophers. Uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful idea, and you seem to have found a way to realize that idea in the seventh power. Uh, we're going to have to come to a close here. Kevin, what, what's the, the one thing that you want to make sure our listeners uh, take away from your experience and, and as you've captured it so, so wonderfully in your book, The Seventh Power. Yeah, think about Gandhi's iconic line of simply becoming the change you wish to see in the world. Leadership for me has become an inside job. As the CEO of our company, my primary focus is getting myself right, which I love to jokingly say is pretty much a full-time job. But really, but really, it's about becoming the change. If you asked me how I helped create a culture of dispersed power, shared leadership, and respect for all voices, it, my answer would be I, I put the vast majority of my energy into trying to become that myself. And when that happens, it ripples and it impacts uh, those around us in ways I think we underestimate. Truth. Yes. Kevin, you are uh, an inspiration. Your story is incredible. And the wisdom that you've acquired, you know, through your experience and especially through this 
uh, literal loss of your voice is it's it's really um, wonderful of you to take the time to sh- to share it with us. Uh, you know this this notion of changing yourself first and foremost, uh, and and not realizing the power of of doing that. It's it's really the the hardest thing. So I wonder if you could say in just you know fifteen twenty seconds what's what's the hardest part of doing that for you. Well, once you start down that road, it gets super easy. But early on, it's just fear. Mm. And, and it's letting go of that fear that releases uh, one into trust. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now, Kevin. I, I hope that we have another occasion to meet and talk. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. How can people find out more about your books and, and what you're up to with The Seventh Power? Thank you, Stu. I have a website set up dedicated to all we've discussed today, and it's titled simply The Business of sharedleadership.com. And you can find my books there, reach me there, and, and find lots of resources related to our conversation today. Wonderful. Thank you for letting us know that. And again, thank you for, for being with us today. Really appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you so much, Stu. It was a great pleasure. And thank you for listening in. Uh, Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show today, you can email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or our station, which is at um, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman. And you can find edited versions of these shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org. And there's also all kinds of other resources there for free videos, book chapters, articles, all kinds of stuff. And uh, we've been doing uh, this year is to focus on the theme of going home. It's a little side project I've got going on, collecting uh, music songs that speak to the issue of, uh, of home and what it means to us. And today we're going to hear, as we close out, a snippet from a great song about uh, going home that also is about uh, the northeastern part of our continent, including Maine. It's called Acadian Driftwood by the band. So check that out. Thanks, Patty Hall, for making it all happen. And for you listening to us, many thanks. It's Morton Business Radio, uh, Sirius XM 132. See you next time. Gypsy tail